This is the sound of heavy hail on the roof of our car. We are stopped at the side of a small dirt road in Kansas underneath a large rotating thunderstorm. Last spring, I joined a group of meteorologists and storm chasers on a trip through the central United States in pursuit of its notorious severe weather. Outside this storm to see into it because it looks like home to watch now, but but I don't know what I'm driving through. I'm waiting for the update. Do you have radar? We had it briefly. Oh yeah, there we go. Where are we now? I think we should just keep heading east. Yeah, east, east. All right. Welcome to the Met Aaron Podcast. I'm Liz Walsh. I'm Noel Fitzpatrick. And in today's episode, we are going storm chasing on the plains of Tornado Alley. We are joined in studio by Met Aaron meteorologist Paul Downs. And we speak to veteran storm chasers Paul and Sarah Austin on why people storm chase and some of their most memorable experiences. Okay, guys, so around the end of May, start of June um, last year in 2019, um, the two of you disappeared off to the United States to go storm chasing. Can you tell me how that trip came about? Well, I suppose we should say first is that it was it was part of our annual leave. It was our holiday, so it wasn't some sort of met errand trip, which is probably a sadder thing that we spent our holidays from the weather service chasing weather. But um it was. It came about, I guess, because when, when I came back to work in Medairn, I shared an office with Paul. And I think um, the first day I sat in there, he was kind of sizing me up to see would I be a potential storm chaser. What Paul wouldn't have known is that I think as probably most people in this room, I'd watched Twister as a kid. And ever since that, I just wanted to go storm chasing. You know? Draft. The angle. It's gonna shift its track. Are you sure? Oh yeah, it's definitely a sidewinder. It'll move left. Is that bad? Wasn't there a road back there? You're right. Go, 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 go! One of my favorite movies ever. Oh, absolutely. That's why we're all here, I think. But uh, yeah, so definitely the driver of this trip though was Paul. We talked about a bit in the office, and um, he had told me a good bit about his background uh, in. Uh, Oklahoma, where he had studied. Yeah, I think they call that a busman's holiday, don't they? You know, um, so passion for meteorology drives us all the time. But uh, yeah, my background—I actually was uh, been interested in storms since I was a kid, and back watching the National Geographic TV shows on a Saturday evening and things like that uh, drove my passion for meteorology from the start. Back in 2003, I got a chance to go storm chasing uh, through a group in England. Uh, there was an online weather forum, and they were discussing the weather and. This opportunity came up at the very, very last minute to go for a storm chase trip 
So over the space of a weekend, I decided, okay, I'm going. And the following Friday, I headed off to Oklahoma. Um, and from there, it's just been, been nonstop. Uh, I went to the College of Page in Chicago for a while. Um, we did some courses, had some storm chasing trips with them uh, in Canada and in the Southern Plains, maybe from Mexico all the way up to, to uh, Central Canada and the Plains. And uh, in 2009, I actually decided to go out there and to start studying meteorology, just more on a casual basis to start with, but I, I fell in love with it and ended up in the University of Oklahoma, where I did my degree. And uh, and anyone who, who's interested in severe weather knows that Oak, the University in Oklahoma is the place to, to study that, right? Oklahoma is the, the uh, at the forefront of, of severe weather research, especially tornadoes. So um, it's like a mecca for, for weather nerds and uh, and storm chasers like myself. Um, and from about 2009-10 onwards, I was storm chasing every year, every, every chance we could uh, in between classes. We'd go out and, and go storm chasing locally or uh, through the plains of, of, of Oklahoma and uh, Nebraska and Kansas and places like that. And so, well. where did you guys go on your trip then? Um, like, where, like, where did you aim for, or did were you just going all around the place? We were all over. Um, we flew into Colorado to Denver, but um, I think all up we hit eight states, so pretty mm-hmm. much the whole midsection of the U.S. So we were in Colorado. Texas, uh, Kansas, Kansas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, South Dakota, where, Wyoming, yeah. Montana, Montana as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did that must Montana. have been amazing. Yeah, it was beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. Sort of parts of the country that you wouldn't often wouldn't go to, you know, as a tourist that you mightn't go to. So it was um, a reason to bring you there, and then you'd just spend days driving these amazing, amazingly straight roads uh, through these plains. A lot of people think we go storm chasing for you know, the craziness and the adrenaline rush of going storm chasing. But to be honest, it's the beauty. The storms themselves are amazingly beautiful, but out that country out there is just unbelievable, even on a good day. So on the down days, we used to go visit some national monuments and different uh, national parks and things like that out there. And absolutely beautiful. And so what was the day-to-day like then when um, each day when you went out? Was it, um, would you look at the models in the morning and then figure out where you were going to go and then just drive forever? <laughs> Pretty much. They'd almost start the, the days would start the night before, right? Wasn't that kind of... Yeah. So the minute you get in the night before, you'd sit up and look at the last model run coming in and, uh, you know, plan out where you wanted to be the next morning because oftentimes things could change throughout the day, throughout the day you're on and you get to the evening time and realise, ooh, I need to be 100, 200, 300 miles away from where I am tonight. So it depends on, you know, your start depends on, on, on that if you need to get up a lot earlier to go somewhere. Um... But uh, also, yeah, the morning time we'd wake up, we'd look at the models. Sometimes we'd get some the the the, the morning soundings, which is the first real image of what's going on. And that's showing kind of the, the upper level, um, you know, conditions of the atmosphere, right? Yeah, the soundings basically it's a um, description of the atmosphere from the surface all the way up to the top of of the the boundary layer, or top of the the atmosphere, um, the weather bearing layer, and uh, it's basically just a weather instrument on the bottom of a balloon. That goes up uh, at a certain time every day in many different sites around the world. It's all aligned together and it gives us a picture of the atmosphere. So by looking at that, you can see and map out what the weather is going to be like for the next few days. So it's the the, the realist uh, image of what's going on right now. And uh, So then I guess we, we would use that information in the morning to sort of plot out a, a fairly wide area of where we would be aiming for, for for the afternoon, right? And then 
by the time the afternoon comes around, then it's it's a case of just sort of constant repositioning, really. Yeah, so you're narrowing in your, your, your focus area all the time. You'd have a fairly large area to start with in the morning. You'd pick a town or a, a, a county that you might want to be in, and you'd sit there, you'd have lunch, yeah, you'd have the computer out beside you, and um, you'd, you'd look at the latest models. You'd also look at the satellite imagery uh, as the realest things, what's happening that, that day. So if there is a, um, a front that we're looking at, so a focus area or a dry line where you get dry air on one side and moisture, moist air on the other side, um, that's a focus area along that line. And you'd watch what the actual clouds were doing where they're starting to build up through the, the middle of the day um, and where the, the, the strongest focus of that build is. Um, so all that kind of thing. We were looking at radar imagery to see if there's any any storms being beginning to go up. The radar over there is fantastic. I mean, we would be driving around and they have uh, a really high density of, of radar networks or radar units over there. Um, so you have... Uh, we, we, we had a little app on our phone and we were just using that to tell, you know, you could see our little position on the map and then what the, the systems were doing around us and you could you could plan quite well from that. And it's just this, I guess they're so used to getting those big storms there that there's a need for such a high density radar network there. Yeah, especially um, through the Midwest where they get most of the storms uh, and from there towards the East Coast, um, there's a, there's a, a a large density of, of radar networks and they overlap to a certain extent so that you know you can get a good coverage of, of the whole area. It's almost like it sounds like it's kind of some crazy orienteering um, kind of is yeah kind of yeah. kind of thing it's like where you have to think about maps in your head and and roads and and on all that and then also you're doing the meteorology so there's a lot of brain power going on. There is. The, <laughs> I wouldn't the, like to do it on my own to be honest. The road navigation is as as big a part of it almost you know finding oh, yeah. finding roads i mean people who are experienced knew certain parts of these states and counties where okay the road network is good for this because you know you can go it's pretty much a grid system and then other parts oh no there's this river that's impossible to get across there's only one bridge going across it and uh, local knowledge seems to be very important and it's, it's it's vitally important when storms start going up that you know what the road net network is like uh, you know ahead of the storm so you can stay ahead of the storm and stay safe so um the the navigator's position within the car is 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 vitally important uh, probably the most important spot and where we're going and what's what's uh, how can we stay safe i mean at the end of the day you don't want to, to put anyone in danger so when we were over there we had uh, there were a group of us there so it wasn't just myself and paul and uh, two of our team members were um, a brother and sister paul and sarah austin and they've been storm chasing for several years and they've built up really great experience and knowledge on on uh, particularly in storm chasing in that area um while we we're on the road I, I took the opportunity to talk with them for a while um and i interviewed them at this little this little cafe that we stopped off somewhere in the middle of oklahoma i don't know where some little dust road um but uh, they were really interesting to talk to. And I, I started off by asking them about just really simple question of, of what is storm chasing? It's complicated in a sense because storm chasing for one person is not exactly storm chasing for another. Uh, but the elements of storm chasing uh, really boil down to making a, a forecast and looking at other people's forecasts. There are a lot of resources online, uh, trying to position ahead of what may develop and adjusting throughout the day. Now, whether that is the purpose is to capture video for personal reasons, uh, for research purposes. Each person is different. There are people who the, the, the adrenaline rush of, of being um, 
you know, a little bit in harm's way and, uh, and capturing something unusual is, is a big part of it. Um, for other people, it's just the challenge. Uh, and uh, the tricky thing is that even if you're the best forecaster, you still have to navigate the roads that you're presented with. You have to make adjustments um, with the limited information and at times getting data out in the middle of the plains is difficult. There's not cell coverage everywhere. Um, uh, the roads don't always cooperate. Sometimes that the, the storms definitely don't stick to the roads in most cases. And so there is a challenge element. That's something that drives me. It's kind of like, I, I compare it to uh, someone who is uh, into hunting a particular game or, or, or fishing. Uh, you have to, to some degree, you have to get to know the animal that you're pursuing, whether it's for photography or, or actually hunting, and uh, its pattern, its behavior, and in the window of time that you have the best opportunity to actually experience it. And so storm chasing is very similar. We have storms that go up a certain time of day. They behave a certain way. Obviously, they deviate from that mean quite a bit at times. But we know the general pattern and we know what can happen. And um, you have a narrow window of a few hours. And if it's you're talking about tornado chasing in particular, um, sometimes you only have a, a window of a few minutes because the average uh, duration of a tornado is pretty short. It's, it's on the order of five minutes or less. Um, there are tornadoes that are on the ground for, for more than an hour, so uh, it, it, every storm is different. And that, I think that drives a lot of people, too. There's the art aspect. Another factor for me is uh, the community, the storm chase community. If you go to the convention a lot or you chase a lot, you're going to eventually run into the same people. And so we've, we just have some really good friends and we all watch out for each other and check on each other. Um, sometimes if we're stuck in the mud, which we hope not to be, but, um, but we'll help each other out, you know, take, take each other places, but truly look out for each other. So that's a big part of it for me as well as looking at the structure and just the beauty of a storm in itself. You were talking about the storm chasing community and the people you meet on the road. Is there a certain type of person that storm chases? Do you, do you recognize a certain characteristic in the people that you're meeting on the road that you have within yourselves? Or? Well, the first word that comes to mind is what a lot of the storm chasers slash meteorologists call themselves as nerds. But <laughs> just a weather nerd, weather geek, because um, you're looking at the computer and you're downloading models and um, looking at the models and researching it. But I would also say artsy because uh, there's a big, uh, a big part of it is getting the great photo. You know, it's easy to say it takes a certain kind of person to be a storm chaser. And, and there's some truth to that. If you have great fear of, of severe storms, you're probably not going to be the one out there. Although I talked to someone yesterday who started out with a fear of storms and it drove him to, to, to learn more and, uh, and got into it. Um, but I think really storm chasing encompasses a wide range of of temperaments uh you have people who like i said before uh that are big adrenaline junkies and they want to get close and they want to get the, the the shot with the debris cloud really close and you have people who uh their goal is to see as many tornadoes as possible 
regardless of everything else. They, they, they're, they're checking one, two, three, four, you know, counting their tornadoes, how many did I see this year, and so forth. And uh, uh, other people are more into um, the beauty of the, the storm on the whole, the storm structure. Uh, you have uh, accomplished photographers. Storm photography is very difficult because of the lighting challenges. Obviously, you have researchers, whether they're tied to a university or to some other organization or they're doing their own thing. Um, maybe that's what drives them. They're the, maybe the most nerdy. Uh, a lot of radar truck uh, uh, groups out there, mostly tied to universities, um, that have the uh, Doppler on wheels vehicles, and they're trying to get uh, rapid, high-resolution uh, scans at different levels of a storm. I think the forecasters, uh, a big part of it is honing their skill. You know, that's something for me as a big drive is um, how, what can I learn to better understand what drives these storms and, and why this storm goes up and this one doesn't. Why these two storms go up under very similar conditions, but this one produces a tornado and this one doesn't. And trying to understand that is, uh, is a big part of it. And I learn as much from from what we would consider failures as, uh, as we do the successes, sometimes a lot more. And also there's, going back to the research, there's different kinds of research. There's lightning research, tornado research, storm research, um, hail research. Like that's a big thing too. And all of it plays a factor in this whole big animal, you know, the, the storm, the supercell. So I guess one of your objectives when you go storm chasing is actually learning, right? Because you're, you're learning each time you go out and you see something new and maybe compare it to past events and how it's different and how it was the same. Um, what else are you hoping to get out of a storm chase when you go out? Uh, for myself, um, I'm always trying to document what we see um, for my own purposes and, and as well as... Um, as you said, learning. Uh, I have to remind myself sometimes in the in the moment when I'm 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 looking at at uh, looking at radar and other sources of information and trying to capture video to stop for a minute and actually take in what I'm watching. Sometimes it's the opposite. I'm taking it in and I realize, oh, I didn't press record on the video camera. <laughs> I'm enjoying it, but I do want to be able to watch it later. Um, sh but sharing those experiences with, with other storm chasers, with other uh, people. That sometimes we have an opportunity to take the video that we have and apply it to some, some of the research, some of the modeling, to find some similarities to help verify those things, computer models especially. Um, I think also um, there are some... There are some uh, humanitarian efforts that come out of storm chasing. So there, there's an organization called Storm Assist, as, a, as an example. And they take just video and sometimes photography, but especially video from storm chasers donated to the organization. And they'll compile it into a highlight DVD that they sell. And then that money goes back into communities that are affected. Um, I know some storm chasers are trained and equipped for um, search and rescue and medical, uh, uh, immediate medical help. Uh, we certainly try to be available um, uh, without putting ourselves in harm's way. We have limited training, but uh, uh, just, just trying to help, help people. And then I think also um, 
one of the things that we do, uh, Sarah and I, and a lot of storm chasers we know is we get opportunities to go into schools and talk to um, young students who are studying weather. Maybe they have a severe weather uh, section in their class. And um, we'll have a teacher who will have us come in and, and do a presentation. And maybe we'll talk about the, the threats that are involved with different types of severe weather and how you can stay safe. And then, uh, and then we'll share some of our video, some of our experiences, and that draws them in because they would, they would, oh, you got some tornado video or you got some video of this, and, and they're interested. Uh, usually, almost always, there's one or two people that are just, they're like a little me, you know? <laughs> the mini me in this class, I can tell that's the one asking all the questions, and they're asking deep questions. And usually there will be a few students who are terrified of storms, and, and my goal usually is to set their mind at ease you can survive these things. Uh, and then for the, for the mini-me's out there to inspire them, and, and even if they're not into storm chasing, to, to inspire them for what, whatever their, their passion is. I, I love asking the kids, how hot is a lightning bolt? And they're like, 10 degrees, 100 degrees. And then a lightning bolt um, can be hotter than the surface of the sun, like 50,000 degrees, and that just blows their mind. Um, and to talk about the largest piece of hail that has fallen. It's about the size of a soccer ball. And it weighs, um, what was it? Uh, I, don't I don't remember how many pounds, but two pounds or whatever. But, can I, you know, I ask, can you imagine a soccer ball of ice falling from the ground or the sky, you know? Um, but I like to, to make it real for them and, you know, talk about those factors as well. We listen to... Paul and Sarah there and they're talking about uh, the late afternoon and evening being the prime time when when these storms occur. But also um, there's a season to these storms. It's um, it's usually the springtime in into the early summer. Where is it Tornado Alley and why? Why is it called Tornado Alley? There's actually two different alleys. Uh, I'll get back to the other one in a second. But um, Tornado Alley is generally from it's just to the east of the Rockies. So the Rocky Mountains is kind of your divide uh, through the centre of, of the US and all the way up to Canada. And the counties or the states to the to the east of that, so Texas, Oklahoma, up to Alberta and Canada, that's Tornado Alley. And uh, your strongest storms form in that region, generally from about late April to the middle of July. And it progresses further north. But before that, around this time of the year, between February and March, you tend to get more strong storms in what they call Dixie Alley, which is uh, along the Gulf Coast, your, uh, um, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee. Arkansas? Arkansas, yeah, as we saw recently, tornadoes went through Nashville, Tennessee, and, and, and unfortunately, uh, there was a quite a large loss of life there. Um, they can be very, very dangerous in this region um, because they can ac- actually happen more often at night time. Um, and uh, through the early hours of the morning. So you can't even see them coming That's it, uh, yeah. in daylight. You, you just really need to have a radar or satellite they rely, picture. Yeah, yeah, they rely so much on the, on the, the weather forecaster uh, giving the warning and sirens going off. So they have sirens in each town that they'll, they'll set off um, if there's a tornado coming. So Tornado Alley, it's got these these key ingredients. Well, there's three main sources, really. Yeah. yeah. So you get a digging trough coming in on the West Coast, bringing some cold air in from uh, Oregon, Washington, places like that, down over the Rockies. And then you have dry air coming from the desert uh, southwest regions, 
so over like New Nevada Mexico and, and the, the Four yeah. Corners region, as they call it. So that's that's the key ingredient that we don't have uh, here and other parts of the world. Bangladesh has it off the, the Himalayas, but Australia it's, it's as well a little bit. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So the, yeah. so that dry air you're saying that's kind of the big difference, eh? It is. It is. Um, the other aspect is they have the, the Gulf of Mexico, which is basically like a big soup pot. So you get a lot of warm, moist air rushing up on front of the Rocky Mountains. Now, the best concept here is to think of a pot of boiling water. You put a pot of boiling water on and you leave it, it bubbles away, bubbles away, and it'll eventually bubble out. But if you put a top on that and you cover it over, what happens? The pressure builds up and it'll actually blow the top off it if you keep boiling underneath. So what happens here is the warm, dry air comes off the deserts out west, over the mountains, so it's pushed up above the surface and goes over the top of the moist air. That acts as a, to- a cap on top of that warming throughout the day. So as the sun shines, hits the ground, heats up the ground, you get turbulence at the surface, so you get that bubbling up like you get in the bottom of a pot, and that builds up and builds up. And if it holds throughout the day uh, long enough, at some point the pressure will break and you'll get storms popping up. So it'll be a lovely sunny day and people are going, oh, what's this thunderstorm warning? So I don't understand it. And by about four or five o'clock in the evening, suddenly you get these storms firing up. And they're very, very strong because they've been building all day, all the energy's there and they can explode upwards. So so if you didn't have that that lid on the pot, so to speak, you you may still be getting these these clouds and storms popping up, but they're just not building up the same potential that they that they that they could if they were sort of being suppressed. Exactly, okay. the, the energy is there, and you might be getting thunderstorms throughout the day, and lots of flooding and things like that. But um, they generally will not pose the same threat as storms as as a day when you've got a strong cap. Um, where you know just get one or two storms popping up through late in the afternoon and the evening time. You mentioned thunderstorms there, so just maybe to to because I guess the, the basis of all these severe storms that you're looking for when you go storm chasing is is uh, based on a thunderstorm. Um, how what's the, what's the basis of their formation? Well, that instability, that, that moisture, um, basically, if you think of a hot air balloon, the, the hot air balloon, the air inside the balloon is much warmer than the air outside the balloon. That's what makes it rise. So it's just like that here. If um, you get that warm, moist air at the surface and you let it up, there's colder air around it that's coming off the, the, the northwest, it's going to want to rise through that war, uh, cold air. So the difference between the warm air at the surface and the cold air aloft, that instability as we call it, that's what causes these thunderstorms to go up. I think what it is, is like um, the question I think we're trying to get to is that basically we get thunderstorms here in Ireland, but we d- they're not on the same level in any way no. of what they get in the United States, um, you know, in the springtime and early summer. Um, and but it is the same processes that form the thunderstorms in Ireland. Um, like this, the same kind of basic physics is the same. And some of the hazards are the same, like there's high intensity rainfall, there's hail, there's lightning. Um, there's sometimes there's downdrafts and, and updrafts going on in that thunderstorm. But because Ireland and um, is a small island we don't have we don't have the dry we don't have a desert area no. certainly not <laughs> um, and we don't really have very high mountains to push the air up and and increase the mid levels so we really just don't have the potential um, for these kind of supercell storms that form in the United States. There's two different sides of it. So the instability I talked about a minute ago mm-hmm. is really important. And we do get instability here, but it's nothing like the instability out in America. Or even if you think of down over uh, 
Spain or Italy, if you've been in holidays during the summertime, you can get some nasty thunderstorms in the evening time there. Um, in Ireland, we tend not to get that much instability. We get enough during the summer, we get a couple of days, we might get some, some decent enough thunderstorms, but not on the same level. Sometimes but I actually think our thunderstorms kind of more happen in the winter and spring because we, we get an awful lot of hail sometimes in the winter. So, yeah, <laughs> it's a different setup. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. Well, the, the, the key element there is people think you need to be very warm at the surface, mm. but it's all the difference between the surface and up in the atmosphere. We get some very, very cold air come over uh, higher up in the atmosphere over us during the winter time. And the difference between that, it's, it's it never gets too cold here, usually besides 2010, maybe. But um, you tend to get that the difference between the slightly warmer surface temperatures and the cold air loft. That's what causes the instability here during the winter time. During the summertime, we tend not to get much cold air coming over us uh, at very high levels. So the difference between the surface and higher up is not as much. Uh, there is occasions we get them. And, uh, you know, it, it gets quite interesting at times. But the other factor you mentioned for, for a supercell is not just the instability, but it's the turning of the winds that creates a, a rotational updraft. So basically, you're looking at, at the, the winds throughout the atmosphere. So at the surface, you might have a wind coming from the southeast. Up a little bit higher, it's coming from the south. A bit higher again, it's coming from the west. And at the top of the storm, it might be coming from the northwest. And all that acts to make like a corkscrew effect. So it's actually, the storm is twisting up. So the stronger the updraft pushes up through it, the more it'll spin. If you think of a uh, a ice skater, and an ice skater goes out and they're they're flying around the ice and they, they stop and they spin. So they're spinning out, their arms out wide and they're spinning. How do they uh, make them spin faster? They pull their arms in close to themselves and they'll spin faster. If you think about the storm, the actual updraft is pushing up stronger and it's tightening in that storm as well. So because you've got that large scale energy is being now put into a smaller spatial area, the storm spins a bit faster. So the storm itself to produce a tornado works like that. The stronger the updraft pulls it in tighter and tighter and tighter. So you get a one or two, three kilometer wide storm. Suddenly you're starting to get this little smaller uh, tornado form in the middle of it. Okay, so we have this almost on a bigger scale. Your whole thunderstorm is rotating, this supercell. And it, that, that rotational energy gets essentially focused. Is it to form your tornado? Yeah, so basically with the, the strong updraft and downdraft, as you make it, uh, as, as it tightens in even more and more, you're going to increase that velocity upwards, so that updraft upwards. And... Again, thinking of the actual uh, ice skater pulling their arms in. That's basically the effect that's happening there. The pressure drops close to the surface and a tornado, tornado starts to form uh, underneath the actual main mesoscale updraft then. Other than the tornado, um, obviously when we were out in the, in, in, uh, in the field, we, uh, there were other hazards we were looking out for. I mean, in the, in the first, uh, the opening clip, we heard some really heavy hail. I mean, uh, yes. um, but hail is... is a fundamental part of, of a thunderstorm, right? It is. And and when we talk about hail in Ireland, we think of little, small, hard balls of ice that really hurt and sting you. When we talk about hail out in America, you do not want to be outside. Um, even some days you don't want to be in your car because it'll destroy your car. It'll break the windscreen. It'll 
dent every part of your car. Uh, unfortunately, it can it take the lives of animals uh, out in the field and destroy crops as well. So it's a, it's a, a very dangerous thing to be around. The main th- reason for that ice getting so big is that as you've got this updraft going up, it's it's building ice. It's very cold air up there, so it's building ice on the actual uh, raindrops. They're turning to ice and it starts to fall when it gets a bit heavier, but the updraft is so strong it pushes it back up again. More ice forms in it, what we call rhyming comes down again and it keeps going up and down up and down until it gets so heavy it gets pushed out of the updraft and comes down uh, ahead of the storm and so the region around the updraft just either side of the updraft is usually where you get the, the strongest the largest uh, hail as well and they can be up to three four five even six inches uh, in diameter very very big lumps of ice yeah. so in a way you're kind of looking for big hail so that you can um kind of infer that there's a strong enough updraft to cause a tornado. So yes. the so you're really looking if you've got tennis ball sized hail, you're you feel like, oh, we're in the zone here. Um, <laughs> if you've got tennis ball sized hail, you know you're in the wrong zone. Um, <laughs> it's probably good for for storm chasing, but not where you want to be. Um, yeah, th- the interesting thing about a storm is that usually on wh- where the warm, moist air is coming into the storm, yeah. Let's just say if a storm is going from the southwest to the northeast, it'll be on the southeast side. You tend to get what we call like a banana shape or, or a, uh, a kind of hook shape on the storm. So to the southeast, generally it's quite dry and all of the hail and rain will fall on the the northern side of that uh, updraft or just to the, the east of the updraft. Sometimes it wraps right back around the storm. And you get what you call like a a a, uh, a donut. A, yeah, it's a he- like a heavy precipitation storm yeah. where you actually get the rain and hail going around the whole tornado, so it's obscured. It's very very dangerous for people in the, in the line of these storms. Um, they can't see them coming. A radar is very important. It's a very useful tool to get to get to a storm. It gives you about five minutes, uh, an image of about five minutes ago. Unfortunately, these storms adapt so quickly that you have to learn to look at the storm to see what's going on, to be able to judge what it's doing. So uh, for me, it's it's a fantastic laboratory as a meteorologist to go out and see what happens in the atmosphere, uh, what's changing, what's what's the result of what I'm seeing and all these ingredients coming together. What uh, was the biggest size hail that you saw when you were out there? When we were out there? Yeah, we, we, yeah, we, we actually, I think we're quite fortunate or unfortunate depending on what you're hoping for but hail wise I think we, we escaped fairly well I mean I would uh, call that fortunate yeah, for sure yeah. down to I think you know obviously good navigation by, by everyone involved that sounded awful in that clip it was, it was heavy it was, it, was, it was large relative to what we would see in Ireland and driving in it was kind of particularly the first time was like wow this is this is uh, fairly intense but um, then in saying that you would park in a, in, in a supermarket or something and you would see a car that is looks like it had been shot at uh, which had obviously <laughs> gone through a real hailstorm. So I think we, we really didn't experience anything, uh, anything well, too impressive. America, uh, so. yeah. <laughs> what size hailstorms did you see on your trip? Uh, I suppose in the largest, there was two particular storms that I really remember, but w- one of the biggest ones that we were actually driving through and had to slow down, um, I suppose you're talking about the size of maybe a, a two euro coin, something yeah, like that. Yeah, between a one oh. and two euro coin. We returned the car and there was no dents on it. So, uh, yeah, you were because bound Because, of course, to... you're, it's a rental car, so you've <laughs> really is. got to, is, got to yeah. be careful, yeah. right? Yeah. That's it. Uh, we, we tend to rent 4x4s out there uh, so we can handle any sort of uh, terrain and uh, get out of there pretty quickly. Um, 
but yeah, you don't want to get a damage and bring it back with, with hail dents in it. Um, so it's very important to stay in the right side of the storm, but more so than that is to keep everybody in the car safe. Uh, and did you see a tornado? We did see a tornado on this trip, yeah. Um, the way it turned out, there was a, quite a lot of more tornadoes in, in May. Unfortunately, we couldn't go at that time, uh, earlier in May. So it was a kind of a quiet period, but we got a, a really, really nice storm in uh, southwest Kansas. Mm-hmm. And the storm itself was absolutely beautiful to watch. Um, when you get this rotation, you start getting what we call like stacked plates look. So you get these different layers and uh, it's amazingly beautiful, especially in the, in the sunset. Um, and we did get a, a brief little um, tornado out of that storm um, and it wasn't too far away from us. So we got That's some images of that. Um, in this case, it wasn't too bad. We knew exactly where it was going and, and what's going on. That's 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 the so key for me. Is is to, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we saw some really, I mean, uh, certainly for me, being my first time out there, um, as, as Paul said, not even so much the tornado, but the structure of these things. It is, they refer to these rotating supercells as motherships, you know, and it is it is that Independence Day moment, this enormous uh, object coming across the sky and because the the planes are so flat there you do have this impression that the sky is kind of so much bigger and it's it's really imposing this these huge rotating creatures almost coming across the sky towards you and it's it's hard to describe um but we did um obviously over there one of the big things is photography so we took lots of pictures and we'll aim to put those up on our on the website and on instagram and It'll be on my own Instagram and things like that, and little video clips as well, so you can really get a sense of of kind of what we saw. The lightning as well was something that I uh, oh, I've yeah. never seen lightning to that extent before. Yeah, actually, when you get these these storms uh, in their their maturity, when they're they're very strong, the lightning can be like a strobe light. It's constantly going, and um, you know we just had to set our cameras up and just keep keep pressing, keep going, and we got some some lovely lightning shots from that. Um, so. When I was talking with Paul and Sarah, um, they've obviously had years of experience in the field. And so I was asking them about some of the their most memorable experiences that they've had when they were out storm chasing. In 2002, we decided to take a trip out to the plains. My brother had just graduated from high school and he was thinking about going into meteorology. And we had talked about chasing storms in the plains for a long time. Uh, didn't have a whole lot of money saved up. And so I, I had saved up a little bit and Turned out to be a great trip. Uh, we got to get on a severe warm storm in northwest Arkansas that produced some small hail and some some strong straight line winds. Uh, a little later, we got to see some storm structure, a uh, big lowering, and uh, at that tor- that storm actually went tornado warned, but we didn't we didn't see anything with it. Um, but I think the thing that sticks out is we had fun. We absolutely had a blast. We we laughed, we joked, we teased each other. Um, we had had many long drives, uh, on family trips. So we had learned to get along in the car and that's important if you're going to chase as a group, which I didn't mention this earlier, but, uh, some, some chasers prefer to chase alone because they don't deal well with trying to decide, you know, make decisions with another person. Um, they, they like to call all their own shots and I have great respect for those people. Other people prefer not to chase alone because it's another set of eyes for the road, for the sky, for everything. But um, we had so much fun on the trip. And we, I, I like to call it a glorified road trip because we didn't have a destination. Wherever the wind took us, wherever the system took us, 
uh, and we found ourselves in some very unusual towns and places and came up had these stories. And I said, Mark, I don't care if we never see a tornado. We have to come back out here and do this again. And so the next year we came out, saw our first tornado after dark. And I, I was so excited to go because I have a degree in TV and radio production. And so the opportunity to get to film everything, and that just fascinated me. And it's not just, I mean, I love the, the storm, but I also love to video and take pictures of the people and how they react and interact. And sometimes I'll even interview local people because I, I just want to know what the average person knows or doesn't know, you know. Do you, do you normally get a good reaction from the locals when you when you speak to them when you're when you're out chasing? Depends on where you're at. Um, generally, usually there's a story, and sometimes sometimes the story can be embellished. Um, one guy he was talking about. Um, how the, he was driving to pick his daughter up and, and the tornado was uh, 10 miles high and like half a mile wide and then picked his car up and spun him a few 360s and threw him into a ditch. And like, it's just like, okay, right? <laughs> but it's fascinating just to hear their point of view. And then some people actually have really good stories. Um, and I really want to know their stories, you know, especially the survivor stories of where they had to take cover or, you know, something like that. It's just, it's good. We were on this storm's pretty high based and uh, watching it dropping some very large hail. In fact, we had already come across some storm chasers who, who had lost windows due to tennis ball size hail. And so we were trying to stay south of this storm and we were out in this field watching. And this guy drove up in a pickup, got out, had a big big cowboy hat on, got out, you guys storm watchers? Yes, yes, sir, we're out here watching this storm, he said. Uh, All right, well, you know, he sat there and talked with us for a few minutes. He said, well, I got to get on, but y'all be safe, y'all be careful, and we decided to reposition. We had to reposition because we, on both ends of the road we were on, there were reports of baseball-sized hail. So that only left one direction to find another road in the middle of where we were. Yeah, we were, we were on a ranch road, and, and it was pretty good, good condition for being a dirt road. But uh, you know, we tried to make an escape back to the highway, and we started seeing these, these hail bombs explode on the road ahead of us. And, and we were in a rental vehicle, and we really didn't want to lose a window or you know, get some damage. So, so we tracked back and went south, and uh, we lost our our information, we lost our, our map information and started just feeling our way through the, the roads and looking for a place to take shelter or get free. And we also had cows in front of us. <laughs> they were like, ah, come on, cows, move out of the way. Finally came across a, a ranch house and it had some trees and we thought we could park up under the trees, but the, it was gated and it was gated shut. And um, we made the decision to to, uh, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's easier to ask forgiveness later than to ask permission. Uh, yes, we, we don't do this often, but we trespassed, and uh, we, we opened the gate, pulled in, and it uh, turns out that that rancher was home and saw, saw their silhouette in the window. We were parked in their driveway, and they, they were waving at us. I thought they were upset, but it turns out they were waving us in. And so we ran up to the door, and it turns out it was the rancher we had met earlier. 
had no idea that's where he lived, and he was awesome. We, he let us come in, gave us coffee. He shared his story of a tornado that he had seen several years back, and he was a great storyteller. Uh, and uh, he sort of rescued us because just probably less than a mile north of where his house was after the fact, a good two hours after the fact, we were driving back, you know, picking our way back out and came across very large piles of hail floating in the road. And we stopped and found some, some hailstones that were still tennis ball size in these crater holes in the ground. So we knew it had been larger. And uh, so sometimes you just really appreciate the people you meet. We've stayed in contact with them uh, since that time. And uh, it's been, been a great experience. So do you guys have a particular chase that sticks out in your memory? Is there a chase that had a, 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 the strongest impact or something that you, you go to when you, when you think about um, a memorable day out on the road? Um, yeah, I would definitely say uh, Greensburg, Kansas in 2007. Uh, that had a huge impact because up until that point, we had seen tornadoes. Um, even in some, some storms, we'd seen several tornadoes. It would just put tornado down, like after another, after another. But Greensburg, Kansas, that was the um, the first time we saw damage to that degree, to that level. Um, the tornado was 1.7 miles wide, and it clean slated 95% of the town. Um, like, you know, we just never, we had not seen that level before. And so that was, like, I was in shock for a month after that, um, just taking that in. In 2007, that was the first time we ever went to the Storm Chasers Convention. We met this group called the Mezzo Group, and a lot of them were firefighters and EMTs. This particular day, uh, the Mezzo Group was north, uh, northeast, but uh, we kind of stayed south. We, and we were just debating, and uh, I'll let Paul tell a little bit about what his thoughts were. We knew that the day had potential early on to be a big day, uh, but it was one of those question mark days. Um, we had stayed the night uh, in Dodge City and driven through from there through Greensburg, Greensburg, Kansas, earlier in the day to Pratt, Kansas, and watching storms struggle to get going. And so we stopped for, for lunch and... Uh, just as we were wrapping up lunch, this one little cell went up further south. We had been on the fence. Do we stay up here or do we drop south? And so this cell went up, and uh, we watched one more scan to make sure it was going to survive and said, that's it. We've got to get down there. Well, that storm actually produced the Arnett, Oklahoma tornado, this really tall stovepipe tornado, really photogenic. And we did not get on it in time to see that. But on our way down, we actually saw these towers that were with these what we call left split storms, where you have a storm that splits and the, the southern one kind of takes a right turn and the northern ones shoot off to the north. And there were three towers. Um, and I took note of them, but didn't think too much about them. And then we continued on, got on the Arnett storm near Woodward, Oklahoma, very late, beautiful LP supercell low precipitation supercell spinning like a top and we did a little time lapse of it and we watched it almost completely evaporate before we decided all that those little left splits that energy had 
congealed into one storm and was developing rapidly and moving north. And so we made the decision to, to try, and, try and get on that storm, hopefully before dark, and started racing north. And uh, one, one mistake we made that day, we, uh, we were in Woodward and we got out of Woodward before we took stock of our gasoline. We were short on fuel, and so we started looking for fuel, and we learned very quickly there aren't very many fuel stops between Woodward and Greensburg. And uh, we're watching this storm, and it had amazing structure. And it's just insane lightning, and looking at it on radar, and we're thinking, That's, it's going to produce a tornado. It's definitely going to produce a tornado. Uh, can we get on it on, in time? And just... Just as we're about to come into this town of uh, Coldwater, which is uh, just a little south-southwest of Greensburg, uh, there was a lightning flash that illuminated a, a very large tornado underneath the base, you know, a wedge-type tornado, wider than it was tall. And Mark and I looked at each other and said, was that what I think it was? And we had to stop for gas. <laughs> we had to stop for fuel. It was driving us crazy. And I remember we stopped and everybody was running around and we, it was one of those old style pumps. You had to pay inside and the guy was taking his time. And I thought, there is no way it's going to be done. The show's going to be over by the time this is this is over. Yeah, the guy inside was like, yeah, there's reports that there might be a tornado, but I don't know. And we're like, yes, yes, there is. Um, but while they were uh, pumping the gas, um, I took everybody's cell phones because I didn't have very good service. And um, the last time I had heard from Randy Denzer and the Mezzo group, they were heading south towards the storm on 183. And from the north side of the storm, if there was a lot of rain, they wouldn't see it. They would just drive into it. So I was frantically trying to find one cell phone that would get a text message or a phone call. And I got a phone call using Paul's phone and called them and said, there is a tornado headed towards 183, at least half a mile wide. And, you know, just call me when you get this message to let us know you're okay. We got on the road. Uh, we got kind of up. I think we had to go over a couple of hills and got within view and the lightning illuminated the largest tornado I'd ever seen. To, to that point in my life. Um, I mean, at that point, it probably was more than a mile wide. And uh, we, we found a spot to stop on the side of the road. We decided we, were, we didn't really want to get closer than where we were and took video with the lightning illuminating this, this very, very large tornado. And it was two hour northwest, I believe, at the time, moving northeast and um, still out in open country. And so we were, we were, again, elated. We were jumping up and down and trying. I mean, we tr I try not to yell a lot now because it, you go back and listen in the video and you say, I would rather listen to the storm. <laughs> Plus, it makes you sound like you've never seen a tornado before. And, and I really don't do that much anymore. But at the time, we were just, just in awe. But um, no, we were very excited until it suddenly hit us that the, this storm had turned and it was going straight for Greensburg, the town we had driven through. And, uh, and so once it had, had moved further north, we decided to proceed further to the north. So me being the videographer, 
I would usually film everything. I would zoom in on the, you know, the tornado and stuff. At this point, um, I had not heard from the, the, the mezzo group. So I gave my video camera and um, to my brother Mark and said, you film it. I'm just going to stay here with all the cell phones and wait for them. Like, I was praying, God, please let them be okay. Like, like for real, like praying so much. Um, and then the tornado crossed 183 and uh, was heading northeast at that time. And I got, I had, my phone said no service. But I got a phone call from Randy Denzer. Like, that was just God right there. And he was like, and I, I was so happy. I was like, I'm glad you're okay. He said that they pulled off on the side of the road because of the, you know, because they got our message about the tornado. It was very surreal uh, coming across the damage path because there were these houses. And this was not in uh, Greensville proper. This was um, southwest of town, these little farming community uh, houses that were, that were impacted. And, um, and we came across this uh, uh, natural gas pumping station that had been hit and was just squealing at this high pitch. I've never heard anything like it. Uh, and I'm thinking natural gas is have, more dense than, than the surrounding air. There's probably a pool of it here, and it's still lightning around here. I really don't feel good about just being right here. But, but it was just no light was except for the lightning and this high squealing noise. And uh, we even heard uh, cattle that, were, that had been affected and, and were making really horrific noises. You, know, you knew some cattle were, were dying. Um, and we started trying to pick our way through downed power lines, driving. And at one point, we just decided we can't get through here. We're going to have to backtrack and, and go around and, and make our way back to Dodge City the long way, which was like another hour and a half it ended up being. But we ended up getting back together with the Randy and their team uh, after the fact, and they told us what eventually happened for them. And uh, basically, they were on the west, northwest side of the storm, coming south. They made a general practice of not chasing after dark, but this was late in the season. They hadn't had a lot of success. They decided, let's do it. We'll just try and be careful. And the storm had basically started to turn back to the north as the tornado was going through town. So they really didn't have any visibility at all. And the tornado tracked through town, and it actually, by the time it impacted town, it, it was traveling north-northwest, and then tracked back to the northwest, back across 183 and did a curly cue. It crossed 183 twice, and um, they had been north of that spot where the tornado crossed the road that they were on when they got our information that, the, that it had already crossed 183, they, they went south. Um, the tornado track actually tracked back over the area that they had been sitting parked. So our communication with them that it had crossed 83 allowed them to move south and out of the path of, of potentially out of the path of the tornado. What ended up happening was that they reached the, the intersection of 183 and 54, I think it is, which is west of town about a mile west of town, and the fire chief was sitting there at the corner, just in shock. Yeah, and, and uh, 
Randy approached, you know, rolled the window down and, and asked the guy, where, where, where is the, uh, the, you know, where's the fire station in town? And the guy said, it's gone. Everything's gone. And uh, because he said, he said, he said, because I've, I've got a report that, that there are some houses south of town that got hit. And this guy says, well, the whole town is gone. So um, they immediately went into, you know, into first responder triage type mode and uh, allowed the guy to, to take them into town, and they started setting up things. And, and it was good for the town of Greensburg because they were the first on scene. And uh, they had people who were medically trained and, and, and trained in first responder, setting up all that organization uh, of search and rescue. And uh, I think they were at it until 3 or 4 in the morning, uh, just, just trying to help people. Yeah, um, I was going to say the, the fire chief was in shock. Uh, according to Randy, and uh, when he found out that they were, the, he was the fire chief. He said, "Well, let's just go. You know, we'll pick you up and take you in to get some of your trucks to help these people who have been hit." And he was like, "You don't understand. The 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 fire department is gone. The hospital's gone. I don't know where my family is." Like he was just totally in shock. And, and just just some information. That town, um, I think it had a population of about twelve hundred people at the time. Uh, and uh, 12 people in town lost their lives, and one gentleman lost his life. Uh, I believe he was a police officer who um, realized there was a, another tornado that sp spawned from this storm headed towards his hometown, and he raced off to try and warn his family and drove into the path of the tornado. So all in all, 13 out of 1,200. Um, no loss of life is acceptable, but um, the limiting of loss of life is... is is what the National Weather Service is all about. And, uh, I, you know, I give props to Mike Umshide, the uh, weather forecast meteorologist on duty in Dodge City for issuing a tornado emergency a full 45 minutes before the tornado hit the town. People actually took, took shelter, and, um, and I think that was a huge part of the limiting of the loss of life in that town. Um, we, we talked to a survivor... Um, just a few days ago, and uh, uh, she remarked that the, the town really hadn't been directly affected by a tornado, um, in her memory, uh, prior to that. So uh, this was not something that uh, they were totally prepared for, but um, because of uh, the National Weather Service's diligent work and, uh, and everyone involved, um, a lot more... A lot more loss of life was, was possible. One thing that storm chasers will invariably come across, uh, have to deal with if they chase long enough, enough years, is, is the impact that tornadoes and other severe types of weather can have on a community. Um, and one moment, a storm chaser can be elated and, ex and, and just excited for uh, making a good forecast, positioning and seeing what Mother Nature is, is producing, and the next minute realizing it's about to impact um, quite a few people, go through a populated area, and something that we, we never wish happens, never hope happens. In fact, we hope the, the, the opposite. Um, and so uh, a storm chaser is going to invariably have to deal with some emotions because uh, I come to a realization, I'm celebrating something that changes someone's life forever and is that okay is it okay that i was celebrating seeing something that 
you know, affected somebody and you have to come to terms and it takes some time. But for me, I had to come to terms with the sense that first of all, whether I was there or not, that tornado was going to touch down. It was going to impact those people. Um, the fact that I was there, um, put me in a position to to contact the National Weather Service and let them know that this is actually happening. It's on the ground. Give them some ground truth. It um, gives us the opportunity to learn more about those types of storms. Um, and I actually heard, I actually read where somebody was interviewed from Greensburg uh, who actually expressed appreciation that somebody had taken a picture of this entity that had actually completely changed their life. And so those, all of those things go into realizing that, um, yeah, it's, it's okay to enjoy uh, experiencing this thing that, that Mother Nature produces. It doesn't mean that you're, that, that you're celebrating uh, how it negatively affects, you know, a community. I know that tornadoes, and like they are, they're, they're basically nature's most violent storms. The highest wind speeds ever recorded on Earth have been inside a tornado. So what what what's the highest wind speed that was ever recorded inside a tornado? Uh, Three hundred and two miles an hour, in uh, Moore, Oklahoma, in May nineteen ninety nine. Uh, how do they measure that? They measure that with with Doppler radar. So by looking at radar, we're used to seeing looking at radar for rainfall and seeing how the rainfall it goes. But you can actually look at wind speeds as well. So they looked at that and they could see the the uh, the difference between the the strongest inflow and outflow winds. So they get one example from that. That was where they got the specific wind speed from. But in um, in the actual, in reality, wind measurements can't be taken from these storms very easily. So we look at damage instead. So they're measured by how much damage they do. Now, it's a pretty broad scale looking at this, but anything over 200 miles an hour um, is called an EF5 or enhanced Fujita scale, uh, level 5, category 5. So... That is the, the extreme, and that will destroy your house, uh, clean off, off its foundations, um, and it's a very, very dangerous situation to be in. Um, and below that, then, you've got, you know, EF4, EF3, EF2, EF1, and EF0. EF0 is kind of along the lines of what you, you might see on the, the rare occasion there is a tornado in Ireland. It's usually, you know, about, I think it's 70 to 100 uh, miles an hour, so kind of like a very very strong gust during a winter storm here it'll it'll uh, yeah take down some trees it'll take some uh, roofs off houses maybe off off sheds things like that so it's it's an engineering um scale so they look at buildings and they go okay well we've tested this building at such and such a wind speed and it was broken up at this this wind speed so we're going to infer that from the damage done to this house this would be the wind speed. So they, they'll, they'll use wind tunnels and the like to measure how different types of materials react um, in certain wind speeds. Uh, they look at, for instance, uh, shards of wood going through a wall, what sort of wind speed is necessary to, to, to force it through a wall. And if they see that in the actual field, then they can say, OK, that's um, EF2, EF3, things like that. And something you mentioned there, you can have these cases where one structure will be severely damaged and the other will be left okay and 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 that's down to these sort of small little um like mini tornadoes within the larger tornado isn't that right yes so um the larger these tornadoes get sometimes you get what you call vortex breakdown so you get smaller little tornadoes that spin around the main one and they can generate very very strong wind speeds over 
you know, down to a couple of meters uh, in wide. So I've I've been in a house that was destroyed, one half the house gone, the other half the house you have the dinner table set ready for dinner, um, nothing touched. It's eerie to see, very wow. eerie. Yeah. And just to to clarify as well, Paul, I mean, there are obviously some a lot of very severe weather events. You know, we hear of hurricanes and tornadoes. Um, and these are very different things. Obviously, they're different scales, right? Yeah, and they can often get mistaken. Actually, when I say I chase uh, tornadoes, people kind of, you know, if they hear of a hurricane, they're like, "Well, you're not chasing that." Um, the I talked about the the the, the width of a, a, um, a thunderstorm being, you know, one to two kilometers wide, uh, or maybe three three four kilometers wide. Um, a hurricane it can be hundreds of kilometers wide. It's a very large system. Now, it can have embedded tornadoes very, very close to the eye wall as well. Um, but for the actual, um, the scale we look at for, for hurricanes, we talk about a category one, two, three, four, five. It's a Sapphire-Simpson scale. Exactly, yeah. Whereas the scale we look at for a tornado is Is Fujita, or the enhanced Fujita scale. And obviously, if you want to know more about hurricanes, we, we dug into that in detail in, in episode, episode three. three. Yeah, check that out. The town that Paul and Sarah spoke of, uh, Greensburg, that was actually on uh, the route that we took while we were we were over there. So we had a chance to, to visit and to see how it looked um, almost almost exactly 12 years to the day from from when the storm had hit. And even even now, there's still very clear evidence of of the damage that storm has caused. I think the thing that stuck with me the most was there was a set of um, steps leading up to a house except the house was no longer there. The, as, as Paul mentioned earlier, like the foundations had been completely swept clean and there's just these uh, brick steps leading up to an empty space. And I mean, the, the level of, of damage that was done was incredible. I mean, we, this tornado was something like 2.7 kilometers wide. It, uh, it wiped out like 95% of the, of, the, of the town. But so many of the residents survived because of a really good warning system, right? They were able to, to warn them something like 45 minutes before... Yeah, yeah. Um, one of my friends actually was on the forecast desk in um, uh, the local weather station for that. And uh, yeah, had a, they had a very good warning out ahead of time and people could actually leave the town and get away from the town uh, prior to the tornado hitting. Um, there's a lot of questions about, how, you know, how much time is too much time even for a warning <laughs> in this stage. But um, a lot of people got out of the town and it, it saved their lives, basically. Um, it, it went right through the middle of town and absolutely wiped it off the map. Um, and unfortunately, there was loss of life with that with that storm. Uh, so when you guys visited, was there still was the damage still there, or, or like have they been able to rebuild? Or so that's really interesting because they have because uh, many of the residents, as Paul said, there was loss of life, which was terrible. But many of the residents did survive, and they decided if they were going to rebuild their city, they had an opportunity to have a real uh, input into the, the plans for a new town and, and they've decided they've wanted to build it as sustainably and as a, as environmentally friendly as possible. Exactly, mm. as a green town. So um, in, in sort of the visitor centre that we, we saw while we were there, they had, they had laid out the plans that they were hoping to use, you know, as much renewable energy as possible, as much sustainable building methods as possible. And, and it's a really, they've taken a, a, a positive out of what was a really horrific event. And we could all learn a lot from how they bounce back and, and the way they're looking at living. Um, from a more a, a greener perspective, for sure. I guess the big question is: Will you guys go again? Do you think well, you go no. again? Do, would you go again? <laughs> I, I know for sure. We're going to hold you to it. I know for podcast. sure <laughs> that Paul will go again. Um, I, I would love to go again. As I said, it was something that I had always wanted to do, and you know, sort of going around the fields in Sligo, 
pretending and hoping that, that a thunderstorm <laughs> is going to produce a tornado. It doesn't really cut it anymore. Well, I can so, see it now. Yeah, exactly. It's happened. So I think I will definitely um, will we'll head out again. Um, and I think probably a little wiser as well in terms of, um, you know, definitely learn some lessons out there thanks to, you know, the experience that Paul has and the others that we were with. I mean, you know, our, I've, obviously all of our backgrounds is meteorology, but this is such a specific science and it's it's almost an art as well as, as I think Paul and Sarah mentioned there's um, there's only certain things that you can learn from experience and I'm sure Paul yeah. the more you've gone out you see something new every time I'm sure I definitely and, and it's very humbling because as meteorologists I think someone said to me once that the more you learn the more you realize you don't know so you always have to be to be humble and 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 have your eyes open and watch what's going on and learn something every time you go out um, but also like you know we're, we're usually sitting in front of computer screens looking at models looking at uh, data coming in having the ability to be out there in the field watching the storm develop watching weather work watching physics amazing. in action absolutely yes it it's is amazing absolutely amazing to see and, and, and no matter how realistic your model is it's never you know it can never capture that it can never capture that yeah. it'll It'll always be slightly wrong. Yeah, yeah, and this, this, you, you start <laughs> or to realise, <laughs> you start to realise how small scale it works. I mean, our mm. computer models, we look at, at you know, kilometre boxes and, and and larger than that, whereas this is down to a couple of metres. It's very very small and even smaller than that. So this gives you an idea of the complexity and the challenges we have as forecasters to to forecast the weather, based on these little small little changes that can happen that can build up into something as big as a tornado well thanks very much for coming in Paul it was as I said it was a pleasure uh, chasing storms with you and uh, we'll hopefully get out back out there again sometime soon yeah I'm not sure about this year but maybe next year for sure for our climate summary this month Paul Moore has the details on how our weather has been this past winter here are the highs and lows for the winter season December 2019 and January February 2020 based on data from Met Aaron's 25 synoptic weather stations the winter was warmer and wetter than average everywhere in Ireland. The dominant feature for the season for the northern hemisphere was a strong stratospheric polar vortex, well coupled with the troposphere, which led to the Arctic Oscillation and North Atlantic Oscillations being in a positive phase through most of the winter. The knock-on effect for Ireland and much of northwestern Europe was a mostly mobile westerly flow off the Atlantic with a strong jet stream, feeding in numerous low-pressure systems. Six named storms affected Ireland through the season. February in particular saw extreme cyclogenesis in the North Atlantic leading to the development of numerous vigorous storm systems, several of which affected Ireland, including three named storms. This included one of the deepest mid-latitude storms ever recorded in the Northern Hemisphere, Storm Dennis. This led to an exceptionally wet and windy month in Ireland, where 16 of our synoptic stations recorded their wettest February on record, and 11 stations recorded their windiest February on record. This resulted in a lot of flooding, especially along the Shannon catchment. The sunniest place for the winter season was in the southeast, where Johnstown Castle recorded 237 hours of sunshine, 37% above average. Belmullet in County Mayo was the dullest place, with 133 hours of sunshine, 10% below average. The wettest place for the season was Newport, County Mayo, with 702.8 mm of rainfall, which is 48% above average. 
The driest place was Dublin Airport with 224.1 mm, which is 21% above average. The wettest day of the season was at Knock Airport, County Mayo, on the 8th of February with 51.5 mm of rainfall. The highest mean temperature for the season was on Shirkin Island, County Cork, with a mean temperature of 8.2 degrees Celsius, which is 0.5 degrees Celsius above its average, while the lowest seasonal mean temperature was 4.8 degrees Celsius at Knock Airport, which is 0.6 degrees Celsius above its average. The highest temperature for the season was 14.4 degrees Celsius and was reported at Newport in County Mayo on the 7th of January. The lowest temperature was reported at Mullingar, County Westmead on the 19th of January with minus 6.1 degrees Celsius. Storm force winds were reported on eight days during the season. Globally, for surface air temperatures, February was the second warmest February on record behind 2016. The winter in Europe was by far the warmest winter on record, 1.4 degrees Celsius warmer than the previous warmest winter of 2015-2016 and 3.4 degrees Celsius above the 1981-2010 average. Thanks for that, Paul. Well, that's all we have time for today. Our thanks again to Paul Downs and Paul and Sarah Austin for joining us this month, Alan Bennett at Headstuff and the communications team at Met Aaron and at the Department of Housing, Planning and Local Government. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, you can find more information about today's topic on our webpage at met.ie forward slash podcast. And as mentioned, we'll be posting pictures and videos from our storm chasing trip on Instagram and on our webpage over the coming days. You can subscribe to the podcast on the webpage or wherever you normally get your podcasts from and get in touch with us using the MetAaron Twitter and Facebook pages using the hashtag MetAaronPodcast or by emailing us at podcast at met.ie. Thanks for all your comments and suggestions so far. Playing us out this month are the MetAaron Choir, the Isobars, with their rendition of Keep on the Sunny Side. We hope you'll join us next time, but until then, thanks for listening. And take care. There's a dark and a troubled side of life. There's a bright and a sunny side too. Though we meet with the darkness and strife, the sunny side we also may do. Keep on the sunny side, always on the sunny side. Keep on the sunny side of life. It will help us every day. It will brighten all the way. If we keep on the sunny side of Keep on the sunny side, always on.